0: Pray together. Lord, you are our refuge and our strength. You are a very present help in time of trouble. We're thankful that we can flee to you, seek you and your help and your grace. Thank you that you keep us. When we talked about that even in Sunday school, that you preserve us in faith, in spite of uh, the assaults of the devil, in spite of um, the fiery trials, in spite of anything and everything, Lord, you keep your own. And so, Lord, we thank you for your great and precious promises in your Word that you never leave us or forsake us. We thank you that you promise to be there for us and with us. Lord, um, like the disciples prayed, increase our faith, strengthen our faith and hope this morning as we hear your word. And I pray for anyone who's here who doesn't know Christ, hasn't fled for refuge to him from the wrath to come, from the judgment to come, that even today they would seek and find their safe um, and secure refuge in him alone. In His name we pray. Amen. When I ask someone how they're holding up during a time of trial, they often say, Well, there's good days and there's bad days. That seems like a pretty common experience. There are days when our faith is strong, and there are other days when it's more of a challenge to believe that God is working for our good. There are times when we feel like more than conquerors. And there are times when we are struggling in the fight of faith. And we've seen that mix in how Job responds in his suffering. When tragedy struck his family, he said, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And when he was tormented by Sore boils all over his body. He said, shall we not receive evil from the Lord as well as good? But we've also heard him curse the day of his birth and wish that he could die. There are a lot of verses where Job is just plain complaining about how miserable he is and wrestling with why God has not intervened on his behalf yet. Our text for today come from some of Job's better days. And what I mean by better is not he's feeling better physically because he isn't. He's still got the boils. And it's not that his circumstances have gotten better because they haven't improved either. So we're talking about days where his faith is doing better, but the trial still as intense as it has been so far. So if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Job 13. So we continue our study in this Old Testament book. Job 13 and verse 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Or in King James, though he slay me, yet... Will I trust in Him? In other words, no matter what happens, I will trust in God. No matter how bad things get, I will keep hoping in Him. And even if God doesn't heal me of suffering from this awful disease and I end up dying, I will not stop trusting Him. So keep in mind when Job says that, he's still financially ruined. He's still grieving the devastating loss of seven sons and three daughters. He's still being tortured by sore boils from his head to toes. And he does not know why all this is happening or how the story will end. Satan had predicted that if Job's possessions and children and health were taken away, he would turn away from God and lose his faith. But here Job says... Even if God takes away my life, yet I will keep trusting in him. So he's holding on to faith. He's holding on to his God. So Job is an example of 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We walk by faith and not by sight. We don't walk by our perceptions of reality. and We don't go by how things look or seem or feel to us. Proverbs 3, 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Why not? Because our own understanding is finite at best and is often faulty. Our perceptions are often not accurate. So here's some examples from the Bible. When Jacob tried to evaluate his circumstances, he came to the conclusion, all these things are against me. But was that really true? No. God was orchestrating a good and wise plan for Jacob and his whole family. When David was discouraged and said, I will surely perish one day at the hand of Saul, was that reality? No. God had promised David would be king in place of Saul. It's Saul that perishes, not David. When God's people were overwhelmed during the exile, they said in Isaiah 49... The Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. Was that right? No. In the very next verse, God says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. And when the disciples weren't sure if they'd survive a big storm on the Sea of Galilee, and they cried out, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing Was that an accurate assessment? No. Jesus does care, and they were safe, whether they felt that way or not. And we don't want to throw any stones at Jacob or David or the Israelites or the disciples because we often misinterpret our circumstances and jump to wrong conclusions based on our perception of reality instead of trusting God and believing what he says in his word. Erwin Lutzer was seated next to a former airplane pilot on a flight and so they talked about why is it that small planes crash more than large planes and uh, the main reason is because small planes are usually piloted by inexperienced pilots and so here's what the former pilot said. The error of inexperienced pilots is that they refuse to believe their instruments In a storm, they trust their instincts rather than their navigation instruments. That's where they get in trouble. For example, they are absolutely convinced that the altitude of the plane is increasing when it's not. There's an internal mechanism that tells them the altitude, but when the altitude is not increasing, they often choose to disbelieve the instrument and adjust the plane according to their senses. They think that the plane is turning or banking when it's actually not. When the pilot ignores his readings and adjusts the plane according to his intuition, it is sure to crash. There wouldn't be as many light planes that crash if pilots would devotedly believe their instrument panels rather than accepting what they think their senses are telling them. And then the writer adds, the application is clear. In life storms, many a Christian has trusted his or her feelings rather than the truth of God's word. So God is worthy of our trust at all times and in all circumstances. And so by his enabling grace, we want to say with Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. In other words, no matter what happens, Lord, whether I can figure out what's going on or not, I will trust in you. In spite of my perceptions and in spite of my feelings, I believe you are doing all things well. And so a chapter after God's people are saying, The Lord's forgotten us and he's forsaken us in the same people are told in Isaiah 50 verse 10. Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. So you're in darkness, so it's not saying there's a problem with your spiritual walk. It's you fear the Lord, you obey his voice but there's still darkness and not light. He says, keep trusting, keep relying on God. Next text I want to look at is Job 19, verse 23 and 24. Job says, Oh, that my words were written... Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that with an iron stylus and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. So Job says he wants his words recorded permanently, and not everything he said is worth remembering. Remember, he himself acknowledged that the words of a man in despair are often words for the wind. But here he has carefully thought about what he wants to say, and he wants it written down, not just in a book, but carved in stone. And here's what the message is. Verse 25. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last day, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. So look at what Job knows. He says, I know I have a Redeemer. And the word he uses is That of a kinsman redeemer. You might remember that from the story of Boaz and Ruth. It's a relative who intervenes on behalf of a family member who's in need of some kind of relief or rescue. Sometimes it's a debt or captivity or some other crisis. And the kinsman redeemer steps in and bails them out, helps them out. So Job says, I have one of those. I have a redeemer. And I know that my redeemer lives and will live Forever, my Redeemer will stand on the earth on the last day. And third, I know that after I die and my body is completely destroyed, He will raise me up. And I shall not only be free from all of my suffering, but I will actually see God with my own eyes. And if you're trusting Christ this morning, you know Him as your God. Redeemer, He is the one who set us free from the debt of sin and the power of Satan at the cost of his own blood. And he lives forever, which means he can and will keep his promise in John 14, 19, because I live, you will live also. And so we need to be reminded, especially when this world's telling us the opposite all week long, this world is not all there is. This lifetime is not it Our hope, our present confidence in a future certainty is that we will live forever after this life and see God and enjoy his presence forever in heaven. That's reality. This lifetime is so short. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said. The marrow of Job's comfort lies in that little word, my, my redeemer, And in the fact that the Redeemer lives. Oh, to get hold of a living Christ. Rest not content until by faith you can say, Yes, I cast myself upon my living Lord and he is mine. A living Redeemer, truly mine, is joy unspeakable. So do you have a solid reason to believe that... Heaven is your final destiny when this world is over. And if God is convicting you, acknowledge, I need to be redeemed. I have a debt of sin that must be paid. Colossians 2 talks about, in verse 14, a certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. So it's like a record of what we owe God. We and have to pay. And if it's not paid off in this lifetime, it gets paid in hell forever, but it never is paid off. It just keeps going. So I have this debt, and I can't pay that debt by anything I can do or offer. First Peter 1.18 says, knowing that we were not redeemed by perishable things like silver or gold, from our feudal way of life. So we can't buy it, we can't earn it, we can't deserve it because we do good things or church things. There's nothing. And so I believe that Christ's death on the cross is the only way my debt could be paid. And so in Colossians 2 it says, having forgiven us all our transgressions, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it. To the cross. So, the certificate of debt that was against us and condemned us was nailed to the cross when Jesus died, and so it is now paid in full. And that's what his resurrection shows that God accepted his payment and it is paid in full. There's no balance remaining. Acts 13 38 39 says this Therefore, let it be known to you that through him, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and that through him, Everyone who believes is freed or justified from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Our next text is Psalm 23, 8 and 9, or Job 23, 8 and 9. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. ...and backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. He turns on the right, I cannot see him. So Job's saying, I don't know where God is. I'm not sensing his presence. He seems far away. Verse 10, but... He knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. So even though it feels like God is painfully absent right now in all my suffering, God knows what's going on in my life. He knows the way I take. And he's not only aware of my situation, he's actively involved in a refining process he's not punishing me he's purifying me and so the reason we saying how firm a foundation besides all four verses just have solid lines is that line the flame shall not hurt thee I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine so trials are a refining process to get rid of the impurities and the junk in our hearts that needs to go and to Make the gold of our faith even more pure. And you see that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, if you want to turn to that. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter says, verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, referring to this eternal salvation that God has accomplished for us in Christ. That's what you greatly rejoice in, even though now... For a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Why? So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So trials refine our faith. They prove and purify our faith. They show us our faith is real and that our God is faithful. Job knows and we know from these verses that trials are beneficial. But there are some days where we might need to pray like that father in Mark 9. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, that this really is for my good. And then he keeps going back in Job 23... 11 and 12, my foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. So Job knows he can't afford to let go of God's word during this trial. And notice he's not just hanging on to what God says, which is important. Well, it's kind of, what else are you going to do? Hang on for dear life to what God's word says. But he, he says, I'm not just hanging on, I treasure it. To treasure is to esteem something as very valuable. How valuable Are the words of God to Job during his trial more valuable than is necessary food? We all eat every day. Food is very important to us. We don't see having something to eat as a big luxury or something we might do if we have a little extra spare time today. We're pretty serious about making sure we get some food at some point on a regular basis. Job cared about food too. He's a human being. He has to eat. But he cares about God's word even more. It's more valuable to him than eating food. If it comes down to a choice between time for breakfast and time for the Bible, he chooses the Bible. If it's a matter of no scripture or no supper, he goes without supper. He says, I would rather have food for my soul than food for my body. And Hebrews 13, 9 reminds us, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. You know that verse is tucked in there. What we really need, what our hearts really need is grace. What we really need during trial is God's truth. God's word is always precious. Psalm 19 says, More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. I shared with a brother this morning. And they're sweeter than honey and honey out of the honeycomb. So they're desirable, they're valuable, but they're especially precious during a time of trial. Staying in God's word, Feeding our faith on God's truth, resting our souls on God's promise is the way we are going to stay connected to ultimate reality instead of being tossed around by our feelings or misguided by our perceptions. And so here are a few verses that remind us of the important role of God's word during times of affliction. Go to Psalm 119. All these will be from Psalm 119. Verse 28, my soul weeps because of grief. So David's saying, I'm in incredible sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Where am I going to get strength during a time of sorrow? According to his word, from his word. Verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction that your word has revived me, given me new strength, giving me new vitality, giving me new encouragement. It's where I'm going to get it, it's from the word. Verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted. Why? That I may learn your statutes. It's worth being afflicted if it means I can learn God's word better. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. I would have gone under. I would be all over if I didn't delight in God's word. And then verse 107, I am exceedingly afflicted. That's a lot of affliction going on. Exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. The way I'm going to get through this is from your word. So don't underestimate the value of hanging on to treasuring God's word during times of trouble. Well, as we close, I want to share a story about a couple who went through some very painful trials and how they illustrate some of the things that we've been seeing from Job this morning. Jeff and Sharon were from Des Moines, uh, but they were visiting Sioux City and staying at a hotel downtown. And one night, Jeff took their four-year-old son, Zach, to the pool, but in a series of tragic events, um, ended up pulling Zach out of the pool unconscious. And so I met Jeff and Sharon that night at Mercy Hospital. So here's how they express their thoughts and feelings about what happened in their Christmas letter that year. Losing Zach is an overwhelming experience. We are overwhelmed by our loss of our beloved son who had a zest for life and a tender place in our hearts. During the three days in the hospital we prayed for God to spare his life. My big question was how to trust God for a miracle yet accept whatever he gave us. In the next two weeks I spent a lot of time asking why. Did God cause it or allow it? Why didn't I see Zach in the pool? I received no answer to these and many other questions. Then the Lord brought to mind a verse from Romans 11. Verse 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. I finally realized that for me to understand was a futile effort... God promised that I wasn't going to, so I might as well give up and just accept it. I must be content with not knowing, only trusting in my sovereign God. And then two years later, here's what they wrote in their Christmas letter. Oops. Hang on. I'm sorry. We started out the year getting our house ready for Elizabeth to come home. She had been in the hospital for her first six months. I have a baby, six months in the hospital, suffering from a respiratory ailment, a byproduct of her premature birth. Her doctors had hoped that if she could get a tracheostomy, it would be easier for her to breathe, and that might help her turn around. But after six months of a valiant struggle, A few days after her surgery, her little body gave out. She went home to be with Jesus on January 28th. Losing two kids in 18 months is excruciating. It is still very painful. All we can do is put our hope and trust in God. Each day we must make a choice to trust him for these events which we simply don't understand and don't feel are fair. We don't like it but who are we to be angry with the one who loves us and knows what is best? We are learning to accept suffering even if we can't understand it. Suffering purifies the heart, strengthens our faith, and draws us closer to our precious Savior. Let's pray. Well, Lord, um, you promised as our days our strength shall be in measure and that there is strength available in our days of trouble to be able to cling to your promises and to trust you when we don't understand we don't like what's going on we don't feel that you're close lord give us faith grant us faith to trust in you no matter what no matter what You're worthy of our trust. I pray again for anyone who's here who hasn't put their trust in Christ. They're trusting in themselves. They're trusting in religion. They're trusting in something other than Christ alone. That even today, they would renounce all other confidences and put their trust in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. It is so sweet to trust in Jesus. Let's stand together.